Welcome to the Library of Mistakes, changing the world one mistake at a time. I'm Russell Napier, the keeper of the library, a beautifully designed building in Edinburgh, housing more than 4,000 books about the mistakes that the world keeps repeating, particularly in finance and business. Visit libraryofmistakes.com to find out more. And for those keen to guard against mistakes, we also run a course called A Practical History of Financial Markets, available both in person in London and Edinburgh or online for wherever you are in the world. To find out more about the course, please see the link in the podcast show notes. Hello, everyone. Welcome. I'm delighted today to welcome John Turner and Will Quinn from my alma mater, Queen's University, Belfast, where all the great economic and financial history is being studied and written these days. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks, Russell. It's great to be on your podcast. Hi, Russell. Thanks for having us. Well, we're going to be meeting again soon because from the 1st to the 3rd of March, for those who are interested, there will be a weekend of mistakes at Hayom Wai. Uh, most of that concentrated on second uh, Saturday, the 2nd of March, and you'll be joining as well along with a host of others. I'm calling it, uh, I'm calling it Woodstock for financial historians. <laughs> so uh, I hope we're getting quite a lot of listeners on the podcast. I hope many of you will be able to, to join us. But we're here today to discuss uh, your book, Boom and Bust, A Global History of Financial Bubbles. It's a, it's a tremendous book, even for someone like myself who's, who knows quite a few of the bubbles. There's a couple in here that are less well-known, which uh, I think will really uh, surprise people. I'm thinking of the Australian land boom, the bicycle boom in particular. We may not have time to get – we certainly want time to get to all of them, that's for sure. We might get to a couple of them. Uh, but we need to begin really with the important conclusion of your book, which is the triangle. You've studied many, many booms and busts, many, many – Bubbles. I don't think bubbles are a word you're afraid to use, unlike some people. And you have put together the bubble triangle, which is really important because it's something that can tell us perhaps when we're getting into this sort of situation. So can we start with a broad definition of, of the bubble triangle or, if you like, the ingredients for a bubble? And then we can talk a bit more in detail about how these things uh, develop. Yeah, that, that's that's like it. You know, I suppose the key insight of the of the book we think is this bubble triangle, and we came up with the bubble triangle because we were frustrated with the the bubble metaphor itself. Uh, you know, the word bubble as applied to what happens in financial markets is a metaphor, and we thought fire was actually uh, a better metaphor. And uh, those who can remember back to school and the uh, uh, the fire triangle, the three sides that are needed for for a fire, so you fuel, oxygen, heat. Uh, that those those three components make up a fire, and of course, then a spark sort of kicks the whole sort of process off. And it's kind of neat also thing about the fire triangle because if you remove one of those things, the fire stops. So if you remove the heat or the oxygen or the fuel, the, the fire stops. So then we, we took this sort of metaphor from chemistry uh, and applied it to to financial markets and to, and to, to, to bubbles. So we came up with a, what's the bubble triangle, and so the fuel in our bubble triangle. Is, is money and credit. So, uh, you know, if, if there's lots of money floating about the uh, financial system, if interest rates are low, we get this reaching for yield phenomenon. So Walter Beget, of course, famously uh, talked about this. You know, John Bull can withstand many things, but he can't withstand 2%. In other words, when interest rates are low, uh, people start reaching into these, uh, what you might call bubble assets. Um, there's also then with uh, abundant credit, people can borrow to buy buy bubble assets. That's the fuel. The oxygen f- for, for, for these bubbles is, is really to do with the marketability of the assets. 
the ease with which we can buy and sell assets. And this is something that's changed a lot over the 300 years of, of bubble history that, that we look at. Uh, you know, due to deregulation, due to technology, uh, markets have become a lot more marketable. It's a lot easier today to buy and sell uh, instruments. Uh, and then the, the final side, the third side of the bubble triangle is the, the heat. Uh, and this is the speculation side. So during these bubbles, we observe, you know, there's always speculation financial markets. But during bubbles, we observe all of these sort of novice investors, these amateur investors coming into the market for the first time and getting very excited. Uh, and also within that whole area of speculation in, in bubbles, uh, you tend not to see uh, short selling taking place to the same degree during during bubbles. It, you know, there's there's rest- constraints to, to short selling. Uh, so that's the three sides of the bubble triangle. And then the spark that sets off the bubble in the first place. Well, in the book, we talk about uh, new technology. Some new radical technology comes along, gets speculators excited. Or it's, it's government policy that, that really triggers the, 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 the bubble and, and gets uh, speculators excited. So in a nutshell, Russell, that's the, the bubble triangle. So, so when I read about the bubble triangle, I obviously, first thing I did was go back through all the bubbles I've been through and try and fit them into this. And the one that surprised me actually was marketability because I hadn't really thought about it before. I think it's just like the, the air you breathe or the water you swim in. And, uh, and when I look back at my career, clearly increased marketability had been a big thing. I mean, that Asian financial crisis I was involved in, uh, I was considered to be an expert at that at the age of 30 because there really hadn't been many people in those markets before. And suddenly they got more marketable. Uh, an interesting comment you, you have here, which I've only ever heard from uh, Joseph Stiglitz before, so you're in good company. And he says, or you say, however, just as one would not keep oxygen tanks beside an open fire, there are times and places where too much marketability can be dangerous. That might get, bring you into conflict with some of your friends in the economic faculty, or uh, would you like to talk about that? I, I tend to agree, and I've made the point myself, but maybe you could expand on, on why there, too much marketability could be a bad thing. Yeah, sure. So I, I can talk about that. Um, one of the most established uh, empirical facts of uh, finance and investing is that uh, trading too often is a very common way to lose money. Uh, investors who buy and sell their assets frequently uh, tend to be um, have their wealth burned away by transaction costs. Uh, and marketability, in some ways, is an enabler of this. Uh, so it can cause people to make worse investment decisions just because they can. Uh, you, you can think of many examples of this. You can think of uh, Robin Hood, uh, a very recent innovation in marketability, where you have app, an app on your phone that allows you to buy and sell uh, without leaving bed, uh, essentially. Uh, and by allowing people to do that, uh, it encourages them to uh, engage in more speculative activity. It's linked to the the, the speculation side of the triangle. Uh, the temptation is to buy today and hope the price rises 10 or 15% and then sell for a quick profit tomorrow. Uh, but what typically happens is that people lose money. And the interesting thing is that although economists, maybe some most people working in finance, tend to think of liquidity as a, a very good thing, uh, this has been uh, understood by governments for um, centuries that there are limits that need to be placed on speculation. And what one of the things we found in the Northern Irish uh, housing bubble was that there was a rule against buying a house uh, on credit you know, with a mortgage and then selling it again within six months. Uh, this was illegal. Um, and what, what actually happened during the housing bubble is that this rule was widely ignored. 
uh, and this led to all kinds of litigation in the years following the crisis. Uh, so th this idea isn't necessarily new that you know restricting liquidity in certain circumstances can improve the function of financial markets or other types of markets. Uh, but as you say, in uh, amongst economists, it's not something that comes up very often. Yeah, the, uh, the the technological innovation or government policy as the spark, that's very interesting. And I think most people listening to this, because of what age we are, because of what we lived through, will see the technological revolution as a spark. We can kind of see that today. Could you say something more about government policy? Or, or, or I think you relate that particularly to the... Uh, the bubble in U.S. housing, but there are other examples. Can you, you know, so we have the triangle. It's all there. It's ready to come bust. What, what sort of sparks could you maybe expect from government to get put things on fire? So in, in terms of the, the, the housing uh, bubble that took place in 2000, most people typically think of the United States, but we want to add into that Ireland, Spain, and to some extent, uh, uh, the U.K. Uh, and these four countries differed from other OECD countries in that the government policy with regards social housing was that we don't really want to provide it. We want the market to basically solve this problem. And so that means building lots more houses, but it also means getting money into the hands of, uh, of, of lower wealth citizens. And so how do you do that? Well, uh, the governments in these countries uh, essentially encouraged their, their banking system, their financial system uh, to start lending to uh, you know, people on on low incomes, uh, people with with very um, uh, very little in the way of, of of stable income, and and when you actually look at the parts of the market that had the largest housing bubble, it's it wasn't at the top tercile, it wasn't at the mid tercile, it was actually at the bottom tercile. So the bottom third of of, of the housing market was the bubbliest part of the housing market in all these economies, uh, and essentially the governments in these economies were wanting. Uh, you know, provide social housing via the financial system. So you deregulate it and, and, and you, you stoke up the financial system. They also were interested in votes. Um, and, and, you know, housing markets are really tied closely to uh, to, to votes in, in, in elections. And so the more house, homer, house owners you have, the more likely they are to vote for uh, certain types of political parties. So there was also that push going on in these economies as well. So that's that's really what we saw as the, the, the political spark that set off the housing bubble. Yeah, but it's said that Margaret Thatcher used to have a chart on her desk, which was uh, the popularity of the Tory party and the inverse of UK mortgage rates. Mm -hmm. so, uh... Absolutely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and of course, with the deregulation of the finances, which coincidentally happened uh, even more under, under a Labour government, um, you know, interest rates super low, uh, You've got, you know, we, we document in the book about the 125% mortgages that uh, the likes of Northern Rock were giving out, uh, the 100% mortgages that were commonplace across Ireland and Spain and in the United States. And yeah, it it's becomes pretty a, a apparent that there was, there was a big play by the government going on in these economies. Yeah, I mean, it's easy when you, when you talk about bubbles to think that there's a, this is all completely and utterly useless. There's an end game to this, particularly in securities markets, which is, the allocation of capital. Uh, you know, we're talking earlier about marketability, how there can be too much marketability. But you do bring up something which is very important in this book, which we call, which you call, I think others are called the useful bubble. Uh, can we talk a little bit more about when the bubble's gone, what can be left behind, why it can be useful, and why it wasn't all a complete waste of time, potentially? Yes. Yeah, so 
the the useful bubble. Um, as you said, that there's an end game to this. That the the uh, price of something, the price of securities, uh, is also linked to the cost of capital, uh, and quite often bubbles take place in very technologically innovative parts of the economy. Most obvious example is the dot com bubble, uh, where you know, say in two thousand. Uh, companies that were based around the internet were finding it very easy to raise a lot of money. Um, and you can already see by how I phrased that, why that might be a good thing for the economy. Uh, having very high share prices means a very low cost of capital, and this can mean almost irrational amounts of money flowing into firms that are investing a lot in research and development. And it's not perfect that the word useful is chosen very carefully. It's not saying, you know, the benefits always outweigh the costs necessarily. It's just that there are benefits to this. Just to say that, uh, you know, whenever it's the share price of a particular sector is high, then that has consequences for capital allocation. And it's quite common in um for a bubble to take place in those types of innovative assets. You know, more recent examples, electric vehicles. If the price of electric vehicle stock is very high, then if you're making electric vehicles, it's much cheaper for you to raise money. Um, your recent, um, uh, what's the, the acronym? Like environmental stocks. Uh, they were very overpriced for some time. Again, that, that's what that means is that in theory, Companies that are very economic, uh, environmentally friendly should find it easier to raise money. Although in practice, there are you know, all sorts of wrinkles in there that mean that doesn't necessarily apply. Um, but in principle, you can have a bubble and it means it's easier for certain types of companies to raise money. And that can be a good thing. So the uh, we are talking about the cost of capital here. You brought us right back down to earth. It's important. It's important for all of us. It's important for investment. It's important for jobs. Uh, it may be a job badly done in a bubble, but there may be some positives from it as well. I think we tend to think these days that we're living in the worst bubbles that there've ever been. But I wanted to quote from your uh, chapter on the mining bubble because uh, I think it, it gives you a pretty good idea of how speculative this thing has always been. And it's just to do with the numbers of stocks that were coming to the market, this increased marketability, as you point out. Uh, the first of these mines to list on the stock market were the Anglo-Mexican and United Mexican, both established in early 1824. Thereafter, until the end of 1825, prospectuses were issued for 74 Latin American mining companies, 44 of which were still operating at the end of 1826. So quite a few of them had disappeared in two years. And then we go on to the broader market. 624 companies were promoted in 1824 and 1825. But by the end of 1826, only 127 were still in existence. So that has us down nearly 500 companies. Uh, you know, I lived through the dot-com bubble. We did see a lot of this. But I'm not sure it was ever something quite like that. Do you want to say something about it's a big subject, the uh, South American mining bubble of, of 1824. But uh, what lessons can we learn from that, do you think? Yeah, I, I, th I think this, again, goes back to uh, to politics because essentially uh, the, the, the British were establishing hegemony over Latin America uh, and they saw a lot of adventurers were going out from Britain to uh, explore the what were the defunct mines and they thought they could bring uh, British technology, so the uh, st you know steam engines, so 
one of the greatest uses of a steam engine uh, in, in that this era was actually pumping out the the water out of mines uh, to to mean that you could go further and deeper in, in the mine. And so there was this great belief that. Uh, you know, with British technology, uh, British engineers, British ingenuity, uh, we were actually going to get all of this uh, gold and silver out of these uh, Central American, Latin American uh, mines. The reality, however, was slightly different. Um, a lot of these mines were inland. Uh, and so what the companies hadn't and their promoters and uh, their engineers hadn't figured on, is how are you going to get all of these steam engines across uh, 100 miles of, of swamp um, uh, essentially, and so there's great they, they, w- when they actually came came to it, they had great problems actually implementing it. And the other problem they ran into was in terms of the labor force. Uh, so you can take the sort of the, your top mining experts out to to Latin America, but the local labor force weren't playing ball, uh, and that became part of the problem uh, in this in, in this sort of uh, era as well. And so this great belief that, you know, uh, Britain was going to create the new El Dorado and all of this money was going to flow back to Britain. It sort of gripped the financial markets for a couple of years. uh, But then reality comes comes to bite when you actually can't get anything out of the ground. Yeah, I mean, what's crucial about all of these, and obviously it's one third of the bubble triangle, is money and credit. This just happened to come along at a time where there was fairly explosive explosion in credit. Also, uh, a lot of people, and we'll come back to this when we get to the, the 1920s, a lot of people were owning government bonds because the United Kingdom had just fought a major war against France. And as those bonds were retired, they were looking around for something else to buy. Do you want to explain perhaps the the monetary effect that was going on in this 1824 bubble that made it easier to list all these companies that never actually uh, put a spade in the ground? Yeah, so... In effect, you know, you've you've already highlighted the fact that you know the wars, you know, Napoleonic wars over this huge issuance of debt that took place was being retired, and so all of a sudden, uh, you know, people need new places to put their money, so they're 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 searching for new places to put their money. Uh, you also have um, essentially banks and other financial institutions becoming uh, lending a lot more freely. So there's a lot more credit flowing around the economy. And in fact, this actually results, uh, uh, you know, when this all goes belly up, uh, we have a financial crisis in 1825 and 26, which was probably the greatest financial crisis that the UK had had up until 2007, 2008. Um, and, and and all of that money being pumped into the, the financial system and all of the, the reaching for yield that was going on from investors uh, was a perfect storm that, that creates this, this huge crisis then. So there's lots of promoters in this market. Isn't this the market where Benjamin Disraeli was effectively a stockbroker's analyst writing reports on these companies? So, so yeah, he, he was writing reports on, on these companies, but he was also, um, uh, you know, writing sort of pamphlets to, you know, encourage uh, the wider public to get involved. And then he himself was getting heavily involved in these. And in fact, he lost so much money that it's it took him 20 to 25 years to pay off the debts that he had accumulated uh, you know, from uh, from his own speculation in the 1825 bubble. For for our listeners who've never been analysts in the stock market, it is really very common in bubbles for the analysts to write about these things to actually own them themselves. I've uh, I think I've never come across an analyst who managed to stand aside from the uh, no matter no matter what they actually thought of the stock, they seem to get sucked into the great vortex of speculation that was going on. It's just one of those things that seems to happen. This book is full of characters as well. Now, I'm hoping that one of you is an expert on Ernest Hooley, 
who seems like quite a man, uh, who can tell us about Ernest Hooley and the bicycle boom, which once again will be a will be a boom and bust, which many of our people listening to this will, will not be that familiar. So Ernest Hooley was a bicycle company promoter. So what, what was a promoter? He was asked this in bankruptcy court many years later. And he said, well, a cycle company promoter or a promoter in general is someone who buys a company and then sells it. Uh, so they ask you, well, how do you make money out of that? And obviously the plan is that you sell it for more than you bought it for. He made his fortune buying and selling bicycle stocks. And his biggest promotion uh, was the Dunlop company. Uh, he bought a much smaller company, the, the pneumatic tire company, for a million pounds, combined it with uh, two or three other much smaller companies, and then floated it as the Dunlop company on the stock exchange for five million pounds having paid off various newspaper uh, paid off various newspapers to talk about how great this company was and how, how much money it was going to make. Um, so he, he makes a very large profit and uh, this sets the template. Lots of other promoters come in and they start doing the same thing by small privately owned uh, bicycle companies that had maybe been, been operated for 10 years, but now there's a big craze for bicycles and they're experiencing a much higher volume of orders and their plan is to take advantage of this uh, and buy them privately and then sell them publicly. And valuations on public markets at the time were much higher than they were on private markets. So this was an easy way to make money very quickly. Uh, obviously, this doesn't last. Uh, most of these companies fail. Uh, you have a, a boom in the price of bicycle shares and then you have a crash. Uh, most of the companies fail. Um, usually through bankruptcy or some kind of reconstruction, which imposes heavy losses on shareholders. There were a few that survived, and one of which was actually the Dunlop Company, as you can probably imagine, because we're still familiar with Dunlop Parish today. The way that they survived was by shifting later in um, the 20th century to producing tires for motor cars rather than bicycles or as well as bicycles. And in doing so, they were able to grow and become you know, one of the largest companies in the world at one stage. Um, so this takes us back to this idea of a useful bubble. Uh, a lot of these uh, companies were floating at the time and very uh, innovative companies, finding it very easy to raise money for a time. Uh, they took advantage of this and then there was a crash and a lot of them failed, but they were innovative companies and they often found ways to survive. And uh, if we hadn't had the bicycle bubble, it's possible that they might not have been able to raise so much capital. You have a great chart in your book of the bicycle or the cycle index, which from 1886 to, sorry, 1896 to 1897, seems to have gone up by 350%. So that definitely is, and it's back below its starting position by, by 1899, that's quite a bubble. I suppose the advantage of that one is that just about everybody was was on the bicycles. Everybody could see the demand side. You know, the demand side was clear and present. You didn't have to uh, theorize that there'd be huge demand for cycles, but they're based on what you've just said. Well, I guess the problem was the supply side. It just came roaring through pretty quickly. So, yeah, definitely. The, the supply side uh, comes roaring through. I noticed this when I was researching the dot-com bubble, by all of the conversations that people were having in popular newspapers and tables. It was all about the internet, all about the demand side, or just saying um, how much, rather than talking about, you know, how much are these companies are actually worth, they were asking how good is the internet? Uh, and there was often arguing that the internet is going to be huge, it's going to change the entire economy. Um, 
they're much more uh, focused on the potential of the internet. It's much more interesting to talk about than uh, the art of actually valuing the companies and something very quantitative. Because even though the internet turned out to be very large, it doesn't mean that these particular companies are going to make a lot of money. Uh, and that's a much more complicated question than just how big is the internet going to be? Well, you, you hit the nail on the head earlier. I mean, it's the profusion of financial capital, which creates a profusion of capacity. And therefore, the returns are obviously impacted. There's, I mean, there's a reflexive relationship here. I, I guess the case of bicycles is just how quickly it happened and how quickly it triggered the supply. I guess it didn't take too much technology, manpower or intelligence to set up a bicycle factory. And suddenly the world was full of bicycles. Uh, I wanted to go on to, once again, to this issue of this, the, the marketability of securities and the, how it gets spread through the population more generally beyond, if you like, the, uh, the professionals. Uh, and the 1920s we're moving on to now, and the, the, the Liberty Bonds. So the Liberty Bonds were issued to finance, America, America issued them to finance World War II. But I think you make a, a, an interesting case as to why that set the scene, set the foundations for a, uh, for a great boom to come. So just let me, uh, just let me read read that because some of these numbers are pretty um, pretty astounding. Uh, the first Liberty Bond drive was followed by four more, all of which were heavily oversubscribed. As a result, a large number of Americans invested their savings in securities for the first time. The fourth subscription, subscription alone attracted almost 23 million subscribers at a time when the total U.S. population was just over 100 million. This included an unprecedented number of working and middle-class uh, investors. So here we have, this is way before we're in the bubble, but I think you argue that because of this familiarity with this as a, with securities as a form of investment, and once again, the Liberty bond market would have shrunk during the 20s as some of this debt was potentially repaid by the government. That, that is part of the marketability foundation, and it takes many years to build from there, but uh, is, that, is that the correct uh, analysis of the, the importance of the Liberty bonds in this? Uh, yes, absolutely. So I think this is actually what you could trace back the size of American financial markets to is this issue of liberty bonds. If you compare to a company like the UK, where uh, financial markets aren't such a central part of the economy as they are in the US, the UK used a completely different method of raising war capital. Uh, this was a very American thing to try to issue these bonds, unlock the savings of working classes and middle classes and fund the war effort that way. Um so the benefits of this weren't just uh, psychological. So, so they were psychological to some extent. Mm -hmm. Americans became familiar with uh, the principles of investing because of the Liberty Bonds. Uh, they uh, Liberty Bonds actually did quite well. Uh, they made money on those, so they had a positive first experience of buying financial assets. But it's also the infrastructure that was set up in order to sell these Liberty Bonds. Uh, so um the uh easing of regulations making it uh, much more straightforward to go to your local branch or your local post office and buy bonds there whereas previously you would have had to go through a broker it would have been much more complicated um and after the war whenever people are looking for uh, other uses of capital after the liberty bonds are reach maturity and are taken off the market they start looking for bonds and a big change a big potential trigger for the Wall Street bubble, which ends in the Wall Street crash in 1929, was the shifting of national city banks' infrastructure 
from only focusing entirely on selling bonds to selling stocks as well. And it takes all of this infrastructure which you set up for the Liberty bonds and it becomes geared towards selling stocks. Yeah, readers of literature will remember that the narrator of The Great Gatsby was a bond salesman. That was 1921. I wonder if there'd been a sequel, whether he'd have been doing equities by 1927. One, one suspects he probably uh, he probably would. Uh, anyway, technology, very important. You say we've got the triangle and then we've got the sparks. One was government. We discussed one is technology. People forget the role of technology in that 1920s uh, stock market boom. Uh, you say in the book there are two ways technology uh, has an impact. Uh, and I'll quote, first, it provided companies with extraordinary profits in the mid-1920s, much of which was paid out to shareholders. The dividends accruing to the Dow Jones Industrial grew by 120% from 1922 to 1927. But I think the second one is probably uh, the second way technology impacts prices, probably even more interesting. Uh, new technology provided investors with a powerful rationalization for the fact that stock prices far exceeded the level implied by traditional metrics. Now, it's said in the technology bull market that the worst thing a tech company can ever do is make money because at that stage, it becomes possible to relate the earnings to the to the valuations. Having, we'll try and get covering all of your bubbles here. You've already mentioned, Will, your own personal experiences uh, with people trying to avoid talking about valuations. Uh, is this, you see this in everyone, do you? In everyone, this inability to produce earnings actually turns into be quite a bit of fuel for the fire of the bubble. Definitely uncertainty plays a big role. Uh, the fact that these things are very difficult to value, there's no real quantitative anchor that people can have in mind when uh, they're uh, trying to uh, value these things. And then speculation comes in as a substitute. They're uh, thinking more about what the price is going to do in the near future rather than what the asset is actually worth. And what you've touched on there is what Robert Schiller called new era thinking, this idea that this new technology it creates a new paradigm where the old methods of valuation no longer apply. Uh, and we see this coming up again and again during a bubble, that this idea of um, thinking, a, a mode of thinking that uh, this new technology or this new innovation just completely changes everything. Um, so what I teach, one of the modules I teach at Queen's is fintech. Uh, and part of that is geared towards how you would go about valuing a fintech firm. Uh, and what one of the things I argue is that even though it's difficult, you sh should still try to use a discounted cash flow model. Uh, because even if you're packing it full of assumptions, that still gives you some kind of quantitative anchor. Uh, you can still then reach a conclusion that, okay, this company is a very, very good company but it's not quite as good as the market price suggests. And I think that's very important to have in mind, uh, especially during a bubble, just no matter how much uncertainty there is, you still want to be thinking in quantitative terms. So the problem is with technology is you probably only get one bite out of the cherry. Now, if you're a miner, things are very different because at any given point in history, you can claim to have below the ground the new mineral that is the, the, uh, the, the thing of the day. And uh, the most important thing is never to start digging, just in case you prove there's absolutely nothing down there. And for our listeners who want a fantastic little book on that, Blue Sky Mining by Trevor Sykes. It's all fictional, but it's about a mining company where the board make themselves lots of money over a long period of time by constantly finding something else which is worth a lot of money over the ground. They get many bites at the cherry uh, when you're in the mining business. The dot-com bubble, you've got some great stats here. I think they're from academic papers. I wanted to read them out because I think it says tells us an awful lot about what's going on in this market. And it tells us a little bit about age. Uh, Guile, 
or why 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 age guide and experience is better than youth and a bad haircut if i can quote from pj o'rourke let's read it and then i'll throw it over to uh to the two of you to tell me what you took from this but it really jumped off the page uh this is during the dot-com bubble mutual funds with younger managers performed worse than average as they were generally much more heavily invested in technology stocks and more likely to exhibit trend chasing behavior. Unsurprisingly, insiders also tended to time their exits well in comparison to the average investor. By one estimate, in the month before the Nasdaq peaked, insiders sold 23 times as many shares as they bought. Seems obvious. Is this is this uh, youth being beat by experience or cynics or what's going on here? And, and uh, was this a pattern you saw in, in uh, other stock market bubbles and busts, or is this just the one we have some decent data from? So I think there are two possible explanations for that. So you could say that older people are more experienced. Maybe they worked through the 1987 crash. They'd seen this type of thing before and they were more familiar with it. And as a result, they saw the crash coming and weren't too invested in it. Uh, But there's another possibility. The other side is that they could have had different professional incentives. Maybe they're more established. Maybe they have a, a bit more to lose. Because one of the curious features about modern markets is that a lot of people aren't betting with their own money. Uh, so this is a study of mutual fund managers. They're betting with other people's money. And if you're a young investor working for a mutual fund in 1998 and everyone else is making a lot of money on dot-com stocks, it might be very difficult to go against the herd. You imagine that if everyone else is making more money than you, then by the time the bubble bursts, you might have already lost your job. And I think you have quite direct experience of this in Asia, Russell? Is that right? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I arrived in Asia in May 1995, was somewhat cynical of the Asian uh, economic miracle story that developed into something a bit more dramatic about decoupling and devaluation of the exchange rates. But of course, it didn't actually happen till the 1st of July 1997. And that was a rather long wait, Well, and uh, I think I was rather, rather lucky to still be employed by the time it actually in that case, and this I think is probably helpful for people, there were some early evidence, I think, in the second half of 96 that it was coming, particularly in Thailand. So you grasp at straws. It's like jumping for that life jacket that's floating around in the sea. And you try to stay afloat for as long as you can, but you've hit the nail on the head as to how this works. Uh, John, the book was written in 2020. Uh, anything you've seen to add to the speculation, marketability, money, credit, uh, nothing that contradicts the thesis of the bubble triangle, anything that adds to it. I mean, I know Will's the expert on crypto, and we'll maybe come back to that. But uh, what do you think? You you happy that it's pretty robust and holding up well? Yes. So so, so one of the reasons that the book actually took off so well in, in late 2020 and, and into 2021 was because during the pandemic, uh, we were seeing uh, another bubble emerge. So you've already mentioned cryptocurrency. So there's a, a, a bubble in cryptocurrency that kind of popped then in, in November 22, but also in high technology stocks, green stocks, electric vehicle stocks. Uh, there was also a bubble uh, in, in, in those industries as well. And so Will and I, of course, uh, want to make sure that, you know, the, the bubble triangle is robust. And so when you think of the, the bubble triangle and what was going on during 2021, 2022, so with super low interest rates, we have the government pumping money into the economy like we've never seen before. All of a sudden, we've got margin trading now for retail investors, thanks to apps like Robinhood and, and, and others. Uh, marketability goes through the roof. 
because you've got Robinhood, but now you've also got Coinbase, you've got FTX, you've got other platforms that are helping people trade the cryptocurrency. Uh, and then uh, in terms of speculation, you've got the bored millennials, you know, during lockdowns, uh, no sports on TV, nothing to bet on. And all of a sudden, the gamification uh, of of a lot of these trading apps means that all of a sudden they're now putting their money, their savings uh, into cryptocurrencies and these uh, high tech uh, stocks. And so you get this this bubble in in these uh, stocks. And of course, then uh, those things all come to an end when 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 you know with a, v- a variety of things. So the the pandemic uh, coming to an end. There's a inflation horizon, so interest rates are going to go up, uh, and this kind of then uh, bursts this bubble. Uh, so I think that kind of reassures us that the, the bubble triangle is robust uh, when it comes to explaining uh, bubbles because we were living through one just as the book was 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 published and, and out in the marketplace. Well, we have a nice connection to FTX at the Library Mistakes because uh, I know someone in the Bahamas who bruised, brewed the beer for FTX. We had a tin of that in the library, an empty tin, I hasten to add, because how else could I get it on the aeroplane? Anyway, it's disappeared. We thought initially it had been stolen, but now we think it's been thrown out by the cleaners. So uh, if anybody's got an empty tin of FTX uh, uh, IPO, please let us know. Disruptor IPO, I should say it was called. The reason I bring it up is it actually appears in the very final chapter of Michael Lewis's book on FTX. And uh, we'd like to get <laughs> we'd like to get another one. It says on the side of it, it's beer made by the Pirate Republic. And it says on the side of it, brewed by pirates for pirates. But as far as I know, was not caused, called as a piece of evidence in the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried. Uh, it's hard. I mean, it's nice to say this is the most colorful one we've ever had. But I think that mining one from the 1824s is as colorful just about as anything, including the creation of a fictional company, country, which many people listening to this will know about called, called Poye. Well, it's a great book. Look, we haven't even had time to scratch the surface because there's some uh, b- b- bubbles in this which really need closer attention and which the market and people in my position know little about. The Australian land boom, I think, is essential reading for anyone, and you've got a whole chapter on that. And the uh, and, and, and the Chinese, you know, there have been several booms and busts now in China, and the role of government in there, obviously, is absolutely crucial, and I think need more understanding. And, of course, that great big bubble in Japan, which you also cover in the book. So uh, for anybody who's interested in uh, the misallocation of capital, useful bubbles, uh, useful idiots, I think, along the way sometimes as well, then this is, this is the book. So I want to thank you both for, for joining me. Well, really looking forward to seeing you in Wales when hopefully spring will be just starting to, to spring. And for anybody who wants to join us, it's Festival of Mistakes, Helm Y, coming up very soon. John, Will, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Russell. Thank you, Russell. Thanks for listening. The Library of Mistakes is based in Edinburgh. To explore it in person, simply visit libraryofmistakes.com, register as a reader and book your visit. It's all free. And to enjoy little nuggets from our extensive collection of books, watch videos of our talks and keep up to date with what we're up to, do follow us on X, LinkedIn and Instagram. Also, if you'd like to learn more about the world of investment, the Library of Mistakes runs an outstanding course called The Practical History of Financial Markets. To find out more, please see the link in the show notes. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to the series? Simply search for Library of Mistakes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or the podcast platform of your choice.